Charlie Lawson had a lot of things to be grateful for during the holiday season of 1929. Despite America just entering the throes of the Great Depression, the Lawsons had a good life. Two years earlier, Charlie had bought a tobacco farm near Germantown, North Carolina. He was a simple man with simple needs. He was a husband, father, and tobacco farmer. He worked hard, kept his family fed, made sure his debts were paid, and he kept a roof over their head. For Charlie Lawson, everything seemed right in the world, but uh, as they say, looks can often be deceiving. Charlie knew that people in town were talking about him. They envied his business, his farms, his fields. They spoke about his family, his children, and his pretty wife. He knew they were talking about him because the voices told him so. The voices. At first, they were just whispers, but soon the voices became so loud they couldn't be ignored. Charlie answered the voices quietly under his breath. At first, his wife Fanny thought he was praying to himself or perhaps reciting Bible verses while he worked the fields each day. But then he started talking to himself at home, too. Something, she thought, was not right with her husband. He'd had some nervous troubles for the past year, but things were stranger now. The quiet, unassuming man had become more outgoing, especially with the children. He laughed and told jokes, which he'd never done before. She might have been happy with those changes in her husband if they hadn't been so abrupt and if Charlie hadn't been spending an inordinate amount of time with their 17-year-old daughter, Marie. Something terrible was going to happen, and it would ruin Christmas in a way that only murder and tragedy can do. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to the final episode of the season, Woods and Fields, Dark and Wicked, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. It's been a weird season. We all know it. Witches, hexes, curses, spirits, and a lot of sins from America's past. Things got darker as we neared the end and started to soak ourselves in the blood of the murders that stained our country's forests, farms, and fields. But I think I've managed to save the most tragic tale for last. This is episode 23, a story of murder, insanity, and mystery, and one fitting for the end of the season as the holidays begin. But listen, this is not a Christmas story to warm your heart. In fact, it's likely going to do the opposite. So keep that in mind because this is not an episode suitable for all listeners. And it may not be one for the kids. You should keep listening though. But don't say we didn't warn you. Charles Davis Lawson was born on May 10th, 1886 in Stokes County, North Carolina. He grew up on a tobacco farm. His father worked the land, and as a boy, Charlie, along with his younger brothers, worked it too. In 1911, Charlie married Fanny Manring, and as was common then, they started having children right away. Their daughter Marie was born in 1912. She was quickly followed by James Arthur, who would grow into the nickname of Buck in 1913, followed by William in 1914. Another daughter, Carrie, arrived in 1917. Charlie's brothers, Marion and Elijah, decided to start their own farms and settle near Germantown. In 1918, Charlie packed up his family and followed them. He found a farm to work as a sharecropper, but his dream was to own his own land. 
He was determined to make that dream come true. More children followed. Although Charlie and Fanny lost their son William to pneumonia in November 1920, Maybell was born in May 1922, James in April 1925, and Raymond in February 1927. After years of scrimping and saving every penny, Charlie bought a house at a barn on Brook Cove Road, 128 acres that went with it. He bought it just two months after Raymond was born. He borrowed $3,200 from the bank for the purchase, making a deal that set his mortgage payments at $500 a year. The farm was just outside Germantown and close to the Lawson and Manring families. It was important to Charlie and Fanny to be near their family so their children could grow up with cousins and other children. That sentiment became even more important in 1929 when another daughter, Mary Lou, was born. The family began to make their sturdy cabin into a comfortable home, and soon Charlie's tobacco crop was doing well enough, he started thinking about replacing the cabin with a modern home. He was well-respected by his neighbors. They all described him as a hard-working, sober, and honest man. Behind closed doors, though, he was strict with his wife and children, often to the point of brutality, because Charlie had a bad temper. He punished the children and Fanny with a switch, an open hand, or his fists. Neighbors saw the violence, as did families and friends, but in the 1920s, such behavior was rarely seen as abuse. It was far too common and either ignored or just never talked about. Most believed it was no one's business what a man did in his own home. In the summer of 1928, an incident occurred that likely affected the rest of Charlie's life and probably led to the start of the whispers that turned to voices in his head. He was digging a trench to drain water out of his tobacco pack house's basement and using a mattock to do it. A mattock is a wood-handled digging tool with a large flat blade on one side of the head and a spiked one on the other. Tom Manring, Charlie's brother-in-law, later recalled that Charlie marked off an area to be dug which was next to a wire fence. He was concentrating on where he needed to dig and forgot about the fence. The mattock stuck on a strand of wire and sprang back, swinging up and hitting Charlie in the head. Well, the injury left Charlie with a nasty cut on his scalp and two spectacular black eyes. He didn't seem severely injured at the time, but several weeks later, he started seeing the local doctor for what he called the misery in his head. He began having blinding headaches and trouble sleeping. Fanny often found him sitting in bed, rubbing his hands together and muttering. He would sometimes be sitting calmly and then suddenly jump up and ran around the house to be sure that his guns were loaded. The Lawson's family doctor, Chester Helsebeck, later confirmed that Charlie suffered from some sort of nervous trouble. The exact definition of what he considered nervous trouble will never be known. Local doctors in the small towns of North Carolina in the 1920s were not exactly known for their psychiatric expertise. Well, soon, Fanny wasn't the only one that noticed his odd behavior. Friends, neighbors, and relatives saw him walk away in the middle of a conversation or wander around the house at night. One night, Fanny woke up to find the bed next to her empty. She went outside and found Charlie kneeling alone in the middle of a harvested cornfield, where he seemed to be alternating between fervent prayer and periods of uncontrollable weeping. It was only after she convinced him to stand up and come back into the house that she realized he'd brought a shotgun with him. 
Charlie had always had a bad temper, but his fits of rage grew worse after his injury. Buck was the only one of the boys old enough to help with the heavy work on the farm, but Charlie often found fault with the job that he did and would beat him with a wooden switch. Buck endured this until May 1929. By then, he was 16 years old, strong, and an inch taller than his father. Charlie confronted him, told him to stand still for a beating, and Buck refused. You'll never be man enough to whip me again, he told his father, took the switch from his hands and snapped it in two. Charlie just looked at him and backed away. Buck was now determined that Charlie would never beat him or any other family member again. He started sleeping in his clothes, ready to defend the rest of the family if Charlie had one of his violent fits in the middle of the night. He was strong enough to control Charlie, who had no choice but to accept that his son was bigger and stronger than he was. Buck had become the family's protector, a responsibility that wore on him and haunted his sleep. The summer of 1929 passed into fall. Aside from Charlie's occasional outbursts of temper, now calmed by the watchful eye of Buck, the Lawson family went on with their lives as they always had. They tended the fields, worked the garden, and cared for their livestock. The older children attended school, cared for the little ones, and overall, their lives were happy ones. Autumn came and went with relative calm. Buck stayed vigilant, and Charlie managed to hold his temper. Winter arrived, and the days got colder. The farm chores changed, and the children spent more time indoors. Then, a little less than two weeks before Christmas, Charlie announced he had a surprise for the family, but he had to take them into town for it. He was happy, almost giddy around the children, which was completely unlike him. Fanny saw it, and she was worried. Any trip to town was exciting for farm children, but with the promise of a surprise, the littlest ones could hardly contain themselves. They piled into the truck and rode into Germantown where Charlie sent them on a shopping trip. He told them to pick out new sets of Sunday clothes, whatever they wanted, no matter the cost. Many of the children had never had new clothes before. Hand-me-downs were common with so many children in the family, each outgrowing clothing that could be passed on to the next, so this was a special event. After they'd picked out new clothes and changed into them, Charlie revealed the rest of his surprise. They were going to visit the town's photographer for their first family photograph. They excitedly lined up for the portrait and then waited patiently for the photo to be taken and for the plates to develop. It must have been a happy occasion, yet the existing photograph shows a family that seems haunted by the world's cares. Buck, a boy of only 16, yet looking like a powerful young man in his 20s, seems already worn down by the weight of protecting his family. None of the children, save for a slight smile on Carrie's face, seemed glad to be posing for the portrait. The eyes of Fanny, who's holding Mary Lou, the baby, at just four months old, are filled with suspicion, while Marie, a beautiful young woman who had a boyfriend and was likely planning to move away from her family's home soon, just seems stunned. If some versions of the Lawson family story are to be believed, Marie may have been hiding a secret from her family a secret that some say led to her death. But it's the eyes of Charlie Lawson that are the most captivating in this family portrait. He's looking at something just off to the right of the camera. Was it the photographer or someone else in the room? Perhaps someone who was talking to him in a voice that no one else could hear. Well, we'll never know, of course, but in hindsight, there is one thing that we can say about Charlie Lawson's eyes. 
They're the eyes of a madman. As Christmas approached, the children grew more excited. They knew they couldn't expect many presents, especially since they'd already received new clothes, but Christmas Day was always special. There would be lots of food, and Christmas was traditionally a time for special dishes enjoyed only once a year. Family and friends would spend the day visiting back and forth, and Christmas supper would be shared with the Manrings, Fanny's parents and family. As often happens in much of the country, but not usually in North Carolina, it snowed on Christmas Eve. By Christmas morning, there was a six-inch blanket of snow outside. The day started with a hearty breakfast shared by Charlie's nephew, Sanders, who had stayed the night. At the same time, another Lawson family was also having breakfast a few miles away. It would be one they would never forget. John, one of Charlie's brothers, had a premonition that something terrible was about to happen. He was not a superstitious man, but he just knew something was wrong. The feeling was so strong that he started to cry and had to leave the table. He tried to convince himself he was being foolish, but he couldn't shake the dread that had overcome him. He would soon receive news that proved his premonition was correct. After breakfast at Charlie's farm, Charlie, Buck, and Sanders joined a group of other farmers for a friendly shooting competition. They set up bottles and cans to bang away at, all the while pointing out the fresh rabbit tracks that could be seen in the snow. Several men mentioned trying to bag one for the stew pot later on in the morning. Inside the house, Fanny and Marie, listening to the sounds of the shots ringing out in the woods, prepared for the family's festive evening meal. Marie made a cake for the occasion, coating it with white frosting and dotting the entire surface with raisins as decoration. She placed it in the center of the table, hopefully out of reach of her little brother's fingers, and then turned her thoughts to the date she had that evening. She and her boyfriend, Charlie Hampton, planned to attend the Christmas play at Palmyra Church in Germantown. Marie wanted to look her best. She put out a bowl of water to wash her hair and placed her curlers in front of the fire to warm them up. Fanny kept busy, dividing her time between the stove and the needs of little Mary Lou, playing in her crib. She darted back and forth, wooden spoon in hand, stirring and preparing. Outside, Charlie Buck and the others continued the shooting match, joshing and teasing each other after every hit or miss. Charlie was still in good spirits, almost manic, it would seem later to the other men. Cooking smells began drifting out of their house around 11.30, which started everyone thinking about lunch. One by one, the men drifted off toward their own farms. Their own meals awaited them at home. Soon, only Charlie, Buck, and Sanders remained. Charlie reminded the two boys about his plans to go rabbit hunting in the afternoon and suggested they walk into town to buy more shells. It was doubtful that any of the local stores would be opened, but Charlie assured them they would find someone who would open up long enough for them to buy a box of shells. He really had a taste for rabbit, he grinned at them, but he needed more shells if they planned to shoot some. Well, Buck and Sanders readily agreed. It was a nice walk into town following the railroad tracks. They could go and be back in plenty of time to eat. With a wave, they started off toward town. Charlie watch them go. His shotgun was resting on his shoulder and his hand was buried in the deep pocket of his winter coat. It was loaded with shotgun shells. They rattled together as they moved through his fingers. He had lied to his son. He had plenty of shells in his pocket, more than enough for what he planned to do next. Well, for what the voices told him he needed to do next. 
About an hour after Buck and Sanders left, Fanny glanced at the clock on the mantel and saw that it was almost 1 p.m. She had arranged for Carrie and Maybelle to visit their uncle Elijah's family for Christmas lunch, so she called the girls over, buttoned them into their winter coats, and sent them out the door. It was a short walk to Elijah's house. Marie was still busy with her hair. James and Raymond happily played on the floor in front of the fireplace, and Mary Lou was content in her crib. Fanny finally relaxed for the first time that day. The cooking and dishes were done and the house was in order. She could rest a bit before she had to get things ready for supper. Carrie and Maybelle's trip to their uncle's house took them along the old stagecoach road that ran the length of the Lawson's farm. Trudging through the snow, they passed the family's wood pile and the tobacco pack house that Charlie had been draining when he was struck in the skull by the mattock. The girls followed the curve of the road toward the first of Charlie's two barns. The barn stood only a hundred yards from the house, and like all the other farm's big buildings, it faced directly toward the stage road. As they rounded the road's sharp curve, the girls could see the barn looming ahead of them. They had no idea that their father was waiting for them there, with the shrill voices echoing in his head. Charlie was standing out of sight behind the northwest corner of the barn with a 12-gauge double-barreled shotgun and a 25 by 20 rifle. Hearing his daughter's excited laughter as they approached, he pressed himself against the barn's wooden wall, ensuring he could not be seen. He gripped the shotgun tightly in his hands and waited for the girls to pass by. As soon as they had, he carefully aimed at Carrie's back and pulled the trigger. As she started to fall, he fired the second barrel at Maybell. A cloud of red mist spread over the snow as she fell to the ground. Charlie snatched up the rifle and walked over to the girls. Maybell was perfectly still, but he could see that Carrie was still breathing. He fired a single rifle bullet into her head. Then he took a piece of scrap wood from outside the barn and bludgeoned the two little girls' heads until they were nothing more than bloody, unrecognizable masses. He stood there for a moment the board dripping bright red onto the white snow and looked down at his daughters. The voices shouted at him. Then he tossed the plank aside and picked up each girl in turn, carried them into the barn and laid them on the floor side by side. He put a stone under each of their heads as a pillow, crossed their arms on their chests and drew their eyelids closed. He looked lovingly back at the two dead girls as he latched the barn door shut and started walking toward the house. As he walked, he loaded two more shells into the shotgun. When he approached the cabin, he saw Fanny outside. She'd gone out into the yard to gather more firewood for the stove. She turned toward Charlie as she started back to the house, and he raised the shotgun and fired directly into Fanny's chest. The wood in her arms flew into the air. She was dead before she hit the ground. Charlie dragged her to the house and dropped her on the front porch. Her skull knocked hollowly when her head struck the boards. In the house, Marie heard the shotgun roar and looked out to see her father dragging her mother toward the house. Fanny was covered in blood. Marie began to scream. The front door banged open and Charlie fired the second barrel. The load slammed into her chest. Pellets pierced her heart and shattered the mantle clock behind her. Both died at the same time. The two youngest boys, James and Raymond, had been quietly playing on the floor when Charlie burst through the door. 
The sudden deafening noises of the shotgun blasts and the bodies hitting the floor made the boys scream. They both ran to hide, but not before Charlie saw them. He went after James first. The little boy ran to his bed and crawled underneath, getting as close to the far wall as he could. But Charlie reached under the bed, pulled James out, and slammed the butt of the shotgun into his head until his skull was shattered. While James' screams were filling the house, Raymond had frantically scrambled behind the stove, trying to wedge himself into the corner. Charlie first tried to pry him out with a shotgun, using the barrel to try and lever the stove far enough from the wall to get at the boy. As the left barrel began to bend out of shape, Charlie gave up and began clawing for him, ignoring the heat from the stove, which singed his shirt. He snagged Raymond's shirt and jerked the boy from his hiding place. As Raymond tumbled onto the floor, he slammed the butt of the ruined shotgun into his face, fracturing his skull just as he'd done to James. Only one child remained alive in the house, baby Mary Lou. She was lying in her crib, screaming at the sounds of terror around her. Thankfully, she was too young to understand what was going to happen to her. Charlie raised the shotgun and crushed her tiny skull with the butt of the weapon. He slammed it down on her head again and again. She was now reunited with her mother, brothers, and sisters in death. Frantic and soaked with blood, Charlie went to work preparing the bodies to be found. The voices warned him that family members would start arriving at any time for a Christmas visit. He had no time to spare. He dragged Fanny inside and closed the door behind him. He laid Fanny out on the floor and placed Mary Lou in her arms. He then laid Marie, James, and Raymond alongside their mother. Charlie climbed the narrow staircase to the house's attic room where the children had slept. He collected four pillows and brought them downstairs with him and gently placed one beneath each of their heads. Just as he had with Carrie and Maybelle, he closed their eyes and crossed their arms on their chests in a position of quiet repose. Charlie sat down for a moment on the bed that he had shared with Fanny in the house's main room and looked at what he'd done. He believed at that moment that he had saved the souls of his family. He truly believed that his wife and children, lying on the floor and spreading pools of blood, would rest in peace. Almost done, he sighed to the voices. Almost done. One of Charlie's brothers, Elijah, and his two sons, Claude and Carol, had spent their Christmas morning hunting rabbits south of the Lawson farm. Claude had killed a rabbit, which now hung proudly from his belt. By 2 p.m., all their ammunition was gone, and they started for home. Since their route across the railroad tracks would take them close to Charlie and Fanny's house, Elijah suggested they stop there and wish the family a Merry Christmas. When they got within sight of the house, Claude ran excitedly ahead and bounded onto the porch, ready to greet everyone in great holiday cheer. He threw open the door with the greeting on his lips, but the words froze before he could speak. What he saw inside the house was more than his young mind could comprehend. Years later, he would remember nothing in that room except for one thing, blood. He stepped back from the door with no recollection of leaving it open or slamming it to try and make it all go away. Elijah's view of the carnage was through the front window. He saw the blood and now he noticed the drag marks on the porch. Something was terribly wrong at Charlie's house. It was obvious that everyone was dead and they had not been dead for long. The blood that was pooled on the floor was still wet and it was dripping between the floorboards. 
Elijah's first thought was that an intruder had entered the cabin and for some unknown reason had murdered the family. But where was Charlie? Realizing they had walked into something horrible and with no ammunition to defend themselves if the killer was still around, Elijah and the boys ran for their lives. Thrashing through the snow, they reached the top of the hill overlooking the Miller farm, which was closest to Charlie's house. Elijah yelled down to Mr. Miller, telling him to call the sheriff and alert the neighbors. Someone had killed Charlie's whole family, he shouted. Word spread in person and along the telephone lines, and soon farmers from all around the neighborhood were grabbing their shotguns and heading for the Lawson farm. They wanted to see what had happened and wanted to see what they could do to help. Dr. Helsebeck was summoned from town, and Sheriff John Taylor followed him. The first arrivals saw the blood-stained snow outside the house. Someone had obviously been shot there, but it was the bodies they found inside that stunned the men. One eyewitness later recalled, There was blood all over the place. I mean blood everywhere. I haven't forgotten a bit of it. As the news of the murder spread through the county, more and more people arrived. Worried men left home with instructions for their wives and children to prop chairs under the doorknobs. Few people in the area had locks on their doors and to let no one inside until they returned home. There was, they believed, a deranged killer on the loose. At this point, Charlie, Buck, Carrie, and Maybell were still missing. Sheriff Taylor began organizing men into a search party to find them. Well, a neighbor named Stephen Hampton found the bodies of Carrie and Maybell in the barn. He first discovered blood and drag marks in the snow and followed the trail into the building. As the men looked around the barn, they found a trampled spot in the snow where their killer had waited in ambush for the two girls, along with a discarded plank of wood with one end soaked in fresh blood. A little blue hat that had belonged to Carrie, now crushed and blood-soaked, was found near her body on the floor of the barn. Word now finally reached the farm that Buck was in town with his cousin, which meant that only Charlie was missing. It was assumed he'd been killed too, at first anyway. But some of the men had started to change their mind. What if Charlie had been the killer, not a victim? Someone in the search party spotted tracks in the snow leading away from the tobacco barn where Carrie and Maybell had been found. They veered off into the trees and to the creek beyond. The footprints were those of a full-grown man. For the length of his stride, he'd apparently been running. Cautiously, the men followed the tracks into the first thicket of trees, across an open field and into the woods again. It was there at just after 4 p.m. that they found Charlie Lawson's body. He was slumped against a tree a few hundred yards away from the house and barn. The scene around him was a strange one. Charlie had evidently been in the woods for some time, walking around and around a single tree. He'd circled the tree so many times the snow had melted in the path he'd walked. He eventually sat down on the ground at the tree's base, put his single-barreled shotgun to his chest, and pulled the trigger. He had a gaping wound in his body, and the gun had fallen on the ground beside him. Four men picked up Charlie's body, each taking a limb and hauled him back to the farm. His suicide confirmed what the lawmen and Charlie's neighbors had been starting to suspect, that Charlie had finally snapped and murdered his entire family. A coroner's jury convened by Dr. Helzebeck agreed. Sheriff Taylor searched the dead man's pockets and found several bills of sale recently struck with tobacco buyers in the area. Two of them had Charlie's penciled handwriting on the back. One note cryptically read, trouble will cause. The other began, blame no one but. 
Everyone assumed the missing word was me, but no one could say for sure. He never finished writing. A few believed that Charlie had started to explain his actions that day and then decided against it. Perhaps in the end, he decided to leave it a mystery. No one will ever know what was going on in Charlie's head when he decided to slaughter his family. When his body was found, he had $58 in his pocket and the tobacco paperwork showed that his business was doing quite well. Whatever problems had led to Charlie's breakdown, poverty was not among them. Why did Charlie spare Buck from the murder spree, intentionally sending him away that day? Was it because he loved him more? Or did he want his son to suffer as the family's only surviving member? This seems to be the most likely scenario. A bit of petty revenge against the boy who'd stood up to him. He knew that Buck would have to live with his failure to protect his family for the rest of his life. Buck would have died to protect his mother, brother, and sisters, and Charlie knew it. He was the only obstacle in Charlie's twisted plan. He sent Buck off to town, and the boy went willingly, never realizing he would never see his family alive again. Charlie Hampton, Marie's boyfriend, found Buck on the snowy streets of Germantown after he learned of the murders. He had to break the news that Buck's entire family had been killed. Buck was brought straight back to the farm where his uncles and their families tried to comfort him as best they could. I don't know why he did it, Buck wept to one of the reporters on the scene. I guess it's just like they say, he must have suddenly gone crazy. There were no formal arrangements to deal with crime scenes in those days, so it was left to Charlie's relatives and neighbors to help Sheriff Taylor deal with the aftermath of the massacre. Women from nearby farms brought their own bedsheets to give the bodies a decent covering. Volunteers dug the Lawson grave at Browder Cemetery, excavating a trench that would hold eight caskets. Mary Lou would be buried in her mother's arms. The snow of the past few days had made the steep road leading up to the Lawson house impassable for most cars, so all the bodies had to be carried down to the waiting hearses by hand. Bully Tuttle, a local hardware store owner, took Mary Lou's battered little body in his arms and carried her gently down the hill. Years later, he would recall, it was just awful. I barely made it to the hearse. The bodies were taken to Madison, about 13 miles to the east, where an embalming firm run by T. Butler Knight and Yelton's Funeral Parlor were waiting to care for them. Dr. Helsebeck was waiting there too. He worked through the night to complete his formal examination of the corpses. Sheriff Taylor's brother, a newly qualified pathologist at John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, was visiting his family for Christmas by a remarkable stroke of luck. Dr. James Taylor volunteered to assist Dr. Helsebeck with the autopsies. These combined with what the doctor had seen at the farm allowed the two men to determine the causes of death in each case and to piece together each step of the massacre. They never knew, of course, about the voices in Charlie's head. Only Fanny knew they existed, and she only told a few people. But it was clear to everyone that Charlie Lawson had gone insane. On the morning after the murders, the massacre at the Lawson farm made front-page news in at least 19 different states. Wire services like the Associated Press sent the story out from New York to California. Radio broadcasts and local gossip spread the story even further. By December 27th, newspapers were illustrating their stories with a copy of that family portrait that Charlie had so thoughtfully provided a few days before things went terribly wrong. On the same front page, they also carried a crime scene photograph that showed the family's living room. 
painted with blood. The newspaper and radio coverage brought scores of the morbid curious to the scene. Everyone wanted a piece of history. There was so much blood in the house that one of the volunteers who helped clean up the crime scene had to scoop it up with a coal shovel. He dumped it into an old tin wash tub and a neighbor helped him carry it outside. They dug a shallow grave out of decency and poured the blood into the ground before covering it. While they were doing it, he later recalled, the visitor was busy funneling Fanny's blood from the house's porch into a little souvenir jar. The visitors looted the cabin. Even the tree that Charlie leaned against as he took his own life was stripped bare within a few hours of the discovery of his body. The crowds wanted something to take with them, something to say they'd been at the scene of the tragedy. They took Charlie's guns, the bricks from the house that was later demolished, and even the raisins from the cake Marie had baked a few hours before her death. The crowds also turned the funeral into a nightmare. There would be no formal church service. There were just to be a few words at Browder Cemetery and burial in the mass grave that had been dug there by neighbors. The ceremony was scheduled to start at noon on December 27th. Six hearses were loaded with bodies at Yelton's in Madison that morning. The funeral parlor had been hard-pressed to handle so many bodies at once, so even though the family had wanted white coffins for everyone, a gray one had to be substituted in Charlie's case. Someone scrounged up a piano stool and a small table to supplement Yelton's five coffin stands for viewing at the cemetery. Lacking enough hearses, they transported little Raymond's casket in a private car. Rows of men, with a few women in the crowd, lined the sidewalks to watch the hearses pull away. Hundreds of tourists were waiting at the cemetery to watch them arrive. Automobiles had crowded the highway coming into town and were parked several miles up the road. People walked through mud, water, and wet grass to be close to the show. They soon filled the surrounding woods, too. Reporters circulated through the crowd and found onlookers who had traveled more than 100 miles just to view the funeral. The newspapers agreed that at least 5,000 people turned up at Browder's that day. Some watched in silence and some came and went, taking the opportunity to visit the Lawson house while in the area. The quarter-mile dirt road leading from the highway to the cemetery was too wet for cars, and soon the highway was also impassable. It had not been designed for so much traffic, and the melting snow had soaked the ground. Dozens of cars became stuck and had to be pushed out. The traffic and muddy conditions caused the hearses from Madison to arrive more than an hour late. The vehicles got as close to the cemetery as they could, and then the pallbearers, friends of Charlie's from better days, had to shoulder the caskets the rest of the way. Sheriff Taylor, who had already recruited some men to keep an area next to the grave free of spectators, pushed open a path through the crowd for the pallbearers to use. The coffins were laid out in a line starting with Charlie's full-size casket and tapering down to Raymond's tiny one at the other end of the row. Charlie had been a member of the Primitive Baptist Church, whose elders, Watt Tuttle and Boss Brown, conducted the service at the graveside. Why this thing has occurred, Brown said, I do not know. The coffins were then opened so anyone who wished to do so could say one last goodbye. Seeing the battered faces of the family was too much for Buck. He collapsed in grief and had to be helped to recover so the viewing could continue. His distress was made worse by what would haunt him for the rest of his life. If he hadn't fallen for Charlie's ruse and sending him into town, he might have been able to stop his father before the killing ever started. 
as friends consoled the heartbroken boy, a line formed on each side of the coffins and people started slowly filing past. It took more than three hours for everyone present to get a look. As the afternoon light faded, the coffins were sealed once more and lowered into their shared grave. For the mourners and the ghouls gathered at the graveside, it was time to go home. Buck, his uncles, cousins, and relatives were not the only ones haunted by the murders. The entire community was confused, angry, and saddened, and stunned by the tragedy. The mystery of why Charlie had done it hung over them like a dark, angry cloud. It was a topic of conversation at every dinner table, over coffee at the local diner, and across every neighborhood fence. People wanted to know, they needed to know, why Charlie had committed such a horrible act. Rumors spread. Stories were concocted. Everyone had an idea, but no one had any real answers. Most believed that Charlie's head injury was at the root of the murders. He'd been driven insane by the blow to his head. Others thought that since the murders coincided with the start of the Great Depression, some leaped to the conclusion that Charlie's farm had gone bust, but that wasn't true. The craziest theories were, of course, the ones people talked about the most, namely that Charlie hadn't actually killed anyone and his suicide was staged to make him look guilty. They couldn't believe that someone they'd known all their lives could go crazy and kill his whole family. Others theorized that Charlie might have witnessed some sort of organized crime activity, perhaps a mob murder. He and his family must have been killed in retaliation, they claimed, but since Stokes County wasn't exactly a hotbed for gangsters, this theory didn't hold much water either. The discussion about Charlie's motives went on for years. Then, six decades after the massacre, the rumors turned even more sinister. Stella Bowles, born in 1915, was Marion Lawson's daughter, and she'd had a front row seat for everything that went on in the family, before and after the murders. She confirmed some dark Stokes County rumors by telling the story of a meeting of Lawson women that took place in late December 1929, when she was just 14 years old. Ida and Nina Lawson, who had each married one of Charlie's brothers, were among the group. Years later, Stella questioned her Aunt Nina about what was said that day. Nina told her that Fanny had discovered that Marie, Charlie's daughter, was pregnant. And to make matters worse, Charlie himself was the father of the baby. Charlie had warned his daughter that if she told her mother or anyone else about the baby, there would be some killing done. Fanny had discovered the incest in her family just before Christmas and had confided in Ida and Nina. She agonized over what she should do. Even years after the fact, Nina insisted that Stella keep the information to herself, so Stella did not reveal the secret until 1990. A few years later, Stella's story was confirmed by Ella Mae Johnson, who had been Marie's best friend. Ella May said that Marie had slept over at the Johnson's house a week or two before Christmas 1929 and had confided that she was pregnant by her own father. Soon, others grudgingly admitted they'd also heard the rumor. It's certainly possible that the shame over such a horrible misdeed could have helped to spark Charlie's killing spree. And I'm also sure that a family of that era would have guarded such a secret very closely. Hill Hampton, Charlie's closest friend and neighbor, later admitted that he knew of serious problems going on within the family. He knew the nature of the problem, but it was personal. 
and not his place to reveal it, he said. Hill had been as shocked as anyone would be to learn such a thing then or now. He likely felt it hard to believe that someone with Charlie's religious convictions would do such a thing, but he didn't know that Charlie was no longer himself by that time. The voices had started long before he raped his daughter. They likely told him to do it, and Charlie may not have been in control of his actions by then. What if the voices told Charlie that his only way out was to destroy all the evidence and the witnesses to his misdeed? And Charlie did it. The unending voices in his head wouldn't stop until he was finished. In the end, the only thing that we really know about what was going on in the mind of Charlie Lawson is that we'll never know what was going on in his mind. It was then and remains an unsolvable mystery. With the funeral behind him, Charlie's brother Marion started to worry about financial matters. Buck was next in line to inherit the farm, but that was a mixed blessing since that also put him in line to inherit Charlie's mortgage payments. Buck was only 16, so he couldn't hardly be expected to run the place, so this meant another source of income needed to be found. Marion remembered the huge crowds that had come to town to watch the funeral. There were still at least 90 carloads of strangers showing up at the Lawson house every single day to look around. There was no indication that interest in the murders would fade away anytime soon. Most of the family's property was still in the house, just as they'd left it. Though relatives tried to watch the pace closely, many things had already been stolen. They had their own farms to operate and couldn't be on hand all the time. The neighbors weren't much help. Most of them took exception to the ghouls, and several fights had started when sightseers were run off the property. The most serious involved the man who needed three stitches in his arm after being slashed by a neighbor's knife one night. He'd been peering into the window of the Lawson house. Well, clearly, a long-term solution was needed. After consulting with some friends, Marion came up with the idea. Along with his sons and a few other relatives, they went out one morning and started planting posts in a circle around the house in the tobacco barn. They strung a heavy chicken wire between the posts, effectively fencing off the murder scene. Some neighbors believed that Marion was trying to keep the curiosity seekers away, but he had a much different idea. With all the interest in the killings, he decided to charge visitors 25 cents each to take a guided tour of the property. The cash raise would go to Buck and help him make ends meet, make the mortgage payments, and hopefully ensure the farm stayed in the Lawson family. Well, Buck agreed to the scheme, even though Fanny's family was appalled by the idea, as were Charlie's other brothers. They tried to talk Marion out of it, but he refused to listen. Well, the new attraction was opened on January 15, 1930, and the steep admission price failed to deter visitors. Sometimes as many as 100 people showed up every day. Marion recruited friends and family to staff the cabin tours. He supplemented income from admissions by offering refreshments and a pack of five souvenir photographs that visitors could buy before they left. Locals, especially people in town, complained, as did members of Fanny's family. The tours were shameful, they said, and Marion was embarrassing them all. A committee approached him and asked him to stop. Marion refused. Interest in the murders dropped a little after the first few months, but remained steady for a surprisingly long time. By then, several murder ballads had been written that told the story of the Lawson Massacre, which helped to keep the tourists coming to the door. The site had become a legitimate attraction to the people who came to see it like an alligator farm or an amusement park. 
They paid their admission and could walk right in and see the bloodstains on the floor and walls without having to sneak in after dark. So they kept coming for a long time. Well, after several months, the locals stopped complaining. There hadn't been any real trouble, and while they still considered the attraction in bad taste, the tourists who showed up stopped in town to buy gas, eat in the diner, shop in the stores, and stay at the new hotel. Soon, Germantown was thriving during a time when most of America was suffering from the Depression. All thanks to Charlie Lawson. Well, in time, though, Interest in the Lawson farm started to fall off, but the 1930s saw a rise in popularity in traveling carnivals and sideshows, so the Lawson murders were taken on the road. Parts of the murder scene were sold off to a sideshow promoter who took the artifacts on tour. Whatever the family couldn't sell, he simply duplicated and passed them off as the real thing, like Charlie's guns and Marie's raisin cake. The Lawson family sideshow toured the country for years, appearing alongside Bonnie and Clyde's blood-spattered and bullet-ridden death car, a mummy that purported to be the real John Wilkes Booth, and other morbid attractions. Years passed, and sideshows vanished along with their attractions, and no one really knows what happened to the artifacts from the Lawson house. They disappeared many years ago. The Lawson farm attraction closed, and the sideshow disappeared to likely gather dust in a barn somewhere, but the stories of the Lawsons lived on. The subjects of the tales now, though, turned from murder to ghosts. People started claiming that some family members did not rest in peace. Rumors spread of eerie happenings that were occurring in the Lawson house after dark, long after the tour guides had gone home and the doors had been locked behind them. Articles appeared in newspapers that freely stated the house was haunted. A new batch of curiosity seekers began parking on the road at night, watching the house, unsure of what they might see. Would it be the mysterious lights people spoke of dancing about in the darkness? Or would they hear the reported moans and cries that other people had reported echoing in the stillness of the night? The local chapter of a fraternal order that Charlie once belonged to, the Junior Order of United American Mechanics, began using their most infamous member as part of their initiation ceremony. After the stories of the haunting began to circulate, new members were told to go out to Browder Cemetery and take a rock from the Lawson grave. After that, he had to go to the abandoned Lawson house and walk around the property with only a lantern to light his way. If the prospective member was brave enough to pass the initiation, he was considered worthy of becoming a junior. Decades passed and the house fell into decay. Children and adults wandered the property exploring and sometimes looking for ghosts. Many who ventured onto Charlie's old farm claimed to leave the place with a feeling of deep sadness. Many inexplicably burst into tears. Photographs taken there were often found to be blank when developed. Batteries failed in the flashlights that were used for nocturnal explorations. By 1980, the Lawson house was gone. Some of the wood was salvaged for a small bridge that was built a few miles away, but aside from that, it had vanished. The side of the house and the tobacco barn was plowed under. There's nothing left to see today. But even so, it said the ghosts remain. Owners of the land next door have told chilling tales recently about the spirits of a little boy and girl who began showing up on their doorstep soon after moving into their home. Over the next few weeks, the children kept coming back. After seeing them several more times, the woman who owned the farm started investigating and spoke with a local historian. 
which is how she first heard about the Lawson murders on the neighboring farm. During the discussions, the owner was shown the Lawson family portrait, taken shortly before the family was killed. She immediately recognized her two visitors in the photograph, Maybell and James Lawson. There was no doubt about it, she told the historian. That's who it was. The mystery was solved, but the sightings continued. In fact, they still go on today. According to locals, the Lawson children had often crossed the field where the neighboring house now stands so they could play with the neighbor children. They continue to make this journey today, even after death. Their lives violently ended, but perhaps they finally found some peace. But the old Lawson farm was not the only thing haunted by the past. Buck, the massacre's only survivor, eventually married and started a family of his own. He and his wife, Nita, had a son and three daughters. His son, Arthur, was his namesake, and he named two of the girls for his murdered sisters. Buck tried to have a good life, and while he had many happy times, he was terribly damaged by the events of Christmas Day, 1929. He drank to forget, and when things got especially bad, usually around the holidays, he locked himself in a room with a bottle and played one record over and over again. It was a recording of a popular bluegrass group called the Carolina Buddies performing a song called The Lawson Family Murders. Buck had escaped death in 1929, but he wasn't destined to grow old. On May 10th, 1945, he and another man were riding in a work truck that became stuck in a deep crevice that had been cut in a road for repairs. Witnesses said they had not seen the warning signs and had accidentally driven into the construction zone. The passenger in the truck was seriously injured. Buck, though, was killed instantly. And even in his death, he was haunted by his father. The first three paragraphs of his obituary were a description of the murders in 1929. Buck's life and death were not even mentioned until the fourth paragraph. Arthur Buck Lawson was laid to rest in Browder Cemetery alongside the family he'd lost years before. In his lifetime, Buck never stopped believing that he'd failed his mother and his siblings, so we can only hope that he found some comfort with them on the other side. And that's the end of season six of the American Hauntings podcast. We'll be back in just a few weeks with a brand new season of American history, hauntings, and horrors. Thanks for listening and keep sharing the show with your friends and help us make the premiere of season seven the biggest one yet. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, let's like speak in tongues. 
Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. season finale yeah i'm good so yeah this is a grim season finale it's a doozy doozy. all right thanks for tuning into the american hauntings podcast the show where we discuss history hauntings legends lore and the very very dark side of american history we are now in season six of the podcast woods and fields dark and wicked and woods and fields dark and wicked this is the season finale the season finale yes i'm your co-host cody beck with me is my co-host author historian crime buff the founder of american hauntings troy taylor and actually my voice just kind of sounds like that right now yeah it's been like that all week Um, just you probably yeah yeah. it was was grim i had two events this past weekend and i um it got progressively worse during the first one. And then the second one I had a river road tour and it started out bad, got better in the middle and then got bad again. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's this sinus stuff that's going around, man. It's grim. Well, on the, uh, on the river road tours though, you have 
opted to not use like a bullhorn or anything, right? You just no, I use, use a microphone. Oh, uh, you do? Okay. Put on the bus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The bus is too big for that. So Okay, okay. Uh, I was going to say, uh, if you're straining yeah, no. yourself. I, I have one time when the mic broke, I ended up shouting. Okay, so you just, so that's what it was. So the one time the microphone went out, that's when you decide to shout yeah. on the bus and yeah, yeah. go that I didn't way. Have to do that. Yeah. No, I've had not had good luck with microphones lately. Anyway, I don't think yeah. I told you this. Did I tell you about that? Yeah, no, I was just talking I about it right now. But yeah, what else happened? Yeah, then? well, that either. But St. Louis exorcism uh, evening I had on Friday um, didn't have any you know weird things happen, but. Couple of weeks ago, I guess I guess almost a month ago now. This fall is just blurred. Sure. Um, back earlier in October, one night I was doing the St. Louis exorcism presentation, and my microphone caught on fire. Yes, that's so I was using a wireless mic, and it just started it kept getting hotter and hotter in my hand. And I'm like, "What is going on?" And then it just starts smoking, and catches on fire. And um, I'm now using a wired mic. No more. No more cordless mics. You look um, down and there, there's a crucifix yeah. on the microphone and you no, realize. Th- no, thank God. But, you know, um, it wasn't anything like that, but it was it was on fire. So, yeah, I um, yeah, I'm sticking with the ones with the wire now. So, <laughs> Maybe it you know. got like uh, sprayed with holy water or something. Yeah, something. Like and I was holding it and it caught on fire. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, well, what do you. Uh, so, yeah, if you go to a Troy Taylor event, you might get to see some demonic. Yeah, stuff you never wrong, know. But, yeah, you never know. what happens. But uh, what what do you have? Do you have anything um, to round out the end of the year? And if not, what's coming up right after the holiday? Yeah, yeah. I um. I, well, I wanted to say before we went any further, I want to say thanks to everybody who came out this past weekend for the book signing we had at the Mineral Springs in Alton. Um, it's always fun to see people. Um, you know, we had one back in August for the new Haunted Alton book and people came and got that one again, but people were coming for the new uh, Midwinter Night book, the one I did for Christmas. And uh, have a have had a good response for that, uh, which, I mean, you know, it's kind of a niche book i mean it's a christmas book so sure i mean i'm i'm gonna sell this thing for like a month and then that's gonna be it until next year so yeah um i appreciated people and i appreciated the response that we've got from it but um coming up shortly after the first of the year of course we'll be dead of winter um that's february 11th um we have very limited spots for the vip packages for that that's the um you know the the reserve seating with all the extras um and after our events too are starting to fill up so if you are going to take part or want to take part in any of that stuff, you got to get signed up for it uh, because it's it's really going to be filled up fast. But do remember that the daytime event is free uh, as long as you bring a donation of a canned good or a non-perishable item for the food banks. I mean, that's the main drive behind it. We're just we offered this VIP stuff because that was something that people have been asking for. So we kind of added that in. So uh, people can find out about that at AmericanHauntings.net. And then, of course, January the 9th, before that, uh, tickets are going to go on sale for the 2023 Haunted America Conference. Um, So that will be January 9th. But but this Friday, this coming Friday, after the show comes out, December 9th, the vendor booths are going to go on sale. So they go on sale a month before the conference. So anybody who's interested in in a table, uh, even though we've got a much bigger space this year, I've had a lot of people asking me when they're going to go on sale. So if you are hoping that you're, you know, could get one, if you've got, you know, books or t-shirts or jewelry or antiques or a haunted location or whatever the hell you've got, and if it pertains to this crowd, uh, this is the perfect crowd for you because these are not just browsers, Mm-mm. you know, people come and they, they're get excited about this stuff. So 
If you want a vendor table or you just want to start planning for the conference, um, go to ghostconference.net and um, that will be um, available starting on Friday. So in the next week, of course, will be our year end horror film episode on December the 13th. So that is our last show of the year. And we're done. Starts in January. That's right. So we get a little bit of a quote unquote break, I guess. Short break. Yeah, short break. This is if we won't be busy as hell during that period anyway. But I know, but you know, still. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, let's move on to uh, we have a listener review on iTunes. So again, thank you so much. This really helps people find the show and it helps boost our egos and all that sort of thing. Uh, This review is titled Excellent in All Ways, and it's from Maybe Ermine Iver, um, Ermine Iver, I don't know. Um, it's just all lowercase letters, so I apologize if I don't get it. Um, but it says, I love this podcast because it presents fairly difficult content in an intelligent way. No silliness as detailed as possible. But I would like to say I've made a vow <laughs> since I think it was maybe season three to cut out the bullshit, no silliness, and be as completely straight laced as we can with this Sorry. and i'm glad i'm, I'm glad so I'm that laughing people... but i'm coughing because i've got a sinus i'm glad that so, people have uh, realized the no nonsense uh, approach uh-huh. that we have taken that's why sometimes i think these reviews are for the wrong podcast i know okay. yeah. i know it's like uh we meant to go to astonishing legends um no i yeah, feel like if sorry. they think there's no silliness then i have failed at my half of yeah um, because i, I want to be silly um but no thank you so much and i get what you're saying you know we 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 don't um we don't try to we're not we're not trying to sell to yeah we're not trying to sensationalize it we're just exactly sensationalize story it. and have some fun with it you know? exactly i mean because when you can have fun with it because you can't always right and like i mean it's especially not a because, fun episode so well because we're talking about stuff like we're talking about today and it's like you you can do it one of two ways you can go straight history and just be like this is what happened or you can say like how do you have a conversation about this stuff and not try to lighten the load i know because you know? i mean gallows humor i mean you can't help right it, so right yes yeah the you quick, gotta laugh or you're gonna cry one of the yeah i always stuff. say the the shortest route to not killing yourself is what i yeah, always right? choose and, a little laugh yeah. because this is this is tough stuff so let's let's go ahead and, and dive in uh long story short there was a oh man god yeah that had a farm um in germantown germanton germantown that town yeah okay town i mean you could pronounce it any way you want I i'll pronounce it germanton since that's how okay. it's spelled because english yeah. is perfect um yeah. north carolina charles david davis lawson and he hears voices and he's paranoid. The voices grow louder. Um, eventually, they take hold and he ends up slaughtering his entire family. But he's he's born on May 10th, 1886, grows up on a tobacco farm, decides that's kind of what he wants to do. Marries a woman named Fanny uh, Manring. They have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight Lots children. Lots of kids. Yeah. Eight children as, as uh, farmers are wont to yeah. do. Yeah. And uh, he's got a few brothers on farms nearby. And he's a he's a hardworking, sober man on the outside, as neighbors describe him, but strict and violent with his uh, family. And you said, it, it, of course, this, this type of behavior was pretty much ignored. But yeah, back then. I mean, you know, to, to us, we describe it as being this like horribly violent, you know, traumatic household to live in. But to them, it was just pretty standard, I think. Right. I mean, I think that's how most houses ran back in those days. Yeah. You know, everybody getting whipped with a board and all kinds of crap. You know, <laughs> it's just different era and yeah people minded their own I and mean, we've talked about this many times before in the podcast it's of not, course it's not funny to get people no. 
you know, beating the crap out of their kid, their wife and kids. But that's unfortunately happened a lot back then. Right. And, you know, people did that kind of stuff and everybody just thought, well, that's, it's none of my business. Yeah. You know? Just look the other so, way. Yeah, exactly. Just, I'm not going to get involved. You ever see that, uh, that Bill Burt? skit where he's talking about sean connery um how he had a an interview in playboy back in like 70s or 80s or whatever and he's talking about women he's like you know every now and then you gotta give them a little slap uh-huh. yeah he's exactly like, he's yeah. like i'm not condoning it i'm just saying it was a different <laughs> yeah. time yeah. it was and, a different time and yes. yeah it doesn't make it yeah. right uh, right it's just, just that's, a different time. that was what was accepted back then and i'm you know yeah. we as much as I make jokes about the way we have not progressed, um, I'm glad that this, if you see yeah, at least that. your family yeah. in public, we oh, do something okay. about it. Good God. Uh, let's talk about this um, head injury. And I think you get you get this a lot usually with um, serial killers, especially when they're um, children and, thing, and things like that. And they, they talk about, I can't remember what that trifecta is that has been kind of debunked since then. Um, oh, like bedwetting the and arson. animals and yeah. things on fire. Um, yeah. But, yeah. The, but a lot of them, you know, I think there's still something to that. And a lot of it tended to be a head injury. Um, yeah, it does. It, I hear that a lot too. And, yeah. you know, you, you get whacked in the head and your brain's not working right. That yeah. could lead to yeah. some some terrible Other things. things. So he gets hit with um in the head with a matic, which I was of course I was going to ask what it was, but you explained it in, yeah, in great I tried detail. to explain it. Even it's a, just a digging tool. And I'm I mean, wondering you can, you can Google it and you could find one if you still don't know from what the way I described it. But right, I mean I had to Google it because I didn't know what the fuck it was. Yeah, so I Google it and then tried to describe it. So. And I think it, it makes sense too for like their tools probably had to be uh very uh like versatile back then i guess sure. flip it over and use yeah. the other side for one thing well, i think you know and the dirt you know if you're digging in hard dirt i'm sure it was pretty handy you know right. to have that kind of spike on one side so i mean i guess he's lucky it didn't bounce up and hit him with the spike yeah his well, family not so lucky exactly but that Charlie, could have saved them a lot of heart yeah no kidding right uh, so. He starts seeing a doctor for what he says, quote, the misery in his head. And I've I've talked about this before um, to like therapists and groups and stuff. But uh, if I get very, very anxious, I have what I call the noise in my head, which is uh, just a cacophony of crazy stuff going on. And Lexapro has really uh, helped. OK, I don't remember you mentioning this to me before. Oh, yeah. OK, so. Yeah, it's uh, it's loud. It's uh, unbearable. Does it talk to you? Do, I mean, uh, <laughs> he, no, 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 no. Doesn't tell me. A little nervous here. Doesn't tell okay. me to do anything. I'm um, just kidding. Luckily, I don't have a family. Um, yeah. but uh, just, but no, but I, but I, I understand at least a little bit of a little. Yeah. Is me diving into sure. the head of a crazy. No, no, person. I get it. Yeah, no, I um, understand what you're saying. So he clearly has some sort of brain injury. They called it back then nervous trouble. People are noticing him walking around, talking to himself, just generally being weird fanny ends up finding him in in the uh in the field kneeling praying crying with the shotgun yeah. which is yeah but again but again what are you gonna do about it yeah he's got a shotgun and and you know i mean you don't you're not gonna criticize the guy no. you know, knock you out you know <laughs> yep. so you know you just kind of have to let it go and hope for the best yes so. this is probably a terrible time to bring this up did you know i recently got my first shotgun Oh God! It's no, awesome. I didn't. It's awesome. I'm sorry to hear it, but I'm so excited. I I don't want it, but I'd rather have it and not need it. Um. Anyway, he gets more violent. What What could you possibly need it for? Well, I'm gonna move rampaging to raccoons. I'm gonna I'm gonna move to Alton. Missouri. I'm moving to. Alton Are you gonna move then. to Alton? Oh, so you can fire it off on New Year's night. Oh, on New well, Year's yeah. Eve. 
Oh, yeah. that's what they do in Alton. Of course. Fire guns into the air. Yeah, I, I love all those it's jokes. The truth. Those... Anyone who's listening to this, if that is true. I I'm love the jokes. So. The jokes about, oh, is it fireworks or gunshots? It's like, well, if you're yeah. in Alton, it's, it's gunshots. It's both. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's yeah. both. More yeah. likely. Yeah, more like I had to tell a friend of mine the other day. They, um, it was like, like an early in the morning on a Saturday. And they're like, did you hear all that noise down by the river? I'm like, yeah, those are people shooting at ducks at eight <laughs> o'clock in the morning. Which is, it sounds like a war going on down along the river. Yeah. And I'm thinking, where are we living? But whatever. Anyway, go ahead. Good old A-Town. He gets more and more violent. uh, And one day his son, Buck, decides he's going to stand up to his beatings. And Buck essentially became the family's protector. And it starts weighing on him. And, uh, you know, you you see the the famous picture and Buck is. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you looked that up. I did. If you looked at the picture. We need to put it up on the website. Yeah, uh, easy. It put it linked with the show notes or something so people can find it really easily because it's one of those things I spend a shot a page of the script describing the picture and people people got to see it because when you see Buck standing back there, he's kind of scary looking to be honest. Yeah, I mean this dude, old farm, I mean, he's like sixteen boy. man, and he's like a big old farm boy and he looks like he's gonna kill somebody. Yeah, I mean not not like crazy like Charlie does just looks like he could kill somebody right look like he could snap you in half and I i'm mean, sure he could and i'm sure that probably has a lot to do with yeah. what what happens later yeah exactly um, one time i was about 16 years old and i beat my dad in arm wrestling for the first time <laughs> and yeah. he after that he was like okay let's like wrestle a little bit which my dad and i did not do right. and he asserted his dominance over me very uh-huh. quickly Teach and i was like there. i was yeah. thinking about this and i was like oh imagine if my dad was crazy uh-huh. okay and now i see kind of maybe right. a little bit about this right. story yeah um yeah. So, yes let's talk about this family portrait so the lawson's they go about their lives in the fall two weeks before christmas charlie's really giddy uh says he wants to take the family into town for a surprise well, that's a manic episode there. of course of course I mean, that's he's just back and forth Cla- yeah stuff. classic manic episode yeah. um tells him to pick out your new sunday clothes no matter the cost which was a, a you know very different for them big and, red flag yeah, yeah, red flag and a red banner. Yeah, and, uh, right. You look at the picture, Buck appears kind of worn down. No one in the family looks really happy. Um, Charlie seems to be looking off to the side of the camera. Maybe it's because the pictures took 400 years to take. I don't know. But, yeah. it, but well, you not so much by then. Oh, yeah. It wasn't quite as bad by then. I mean, we were talking 1929. I, so I still make jokes. Not, I don't know. I know, but it's still not as bad as like in the 1800s. So, so uh, yeah, so. so yeah. Yeah. So, so I wonder. Yeah, was he thinking about something else? And do you know where his? Um, I guess it, 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 we wouldn't know, but I didn't know if you read anything. Like, were his? Um, uh, was his psychosis? Were his hallucinations? Were they only auditory? Do you know? Well, if nobody he saw knows. Anything? Nobody okay. knows. The only person ever mentioned all this weird stuff was Fanny to her sisters. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody else ever knew about it. Well, the doctor did, but I don't know that the doctor knew about the voices. Uh-huh. That was something that Fanny told her sisters. Otherwise. No one knew about it because, I mean, she wasn't going to take a chance on embarrassing him. I mean, you're not going to tell the neighbors, you know what I mean? Because if she found out, you know, right. what that'd be like, you know, just, uh, you know, I'd take the chance of my family getting murdered rather than embarrass uh, my husband. Uh, right. Exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about what I call violent night. Holy night. Um, <laughs> it's it's oh. I know. I'm sorry. I'm terrible. It snows on Christmas Eve. John, Charlie's brother. In the morning, starts crying and has a premonition at breakfast, saying something terrible is 
going to happen. What What do you make of that? Do you think that's true? And if it is, I don't anything? know. It, it sounds like some. I I, I don't Sensational know. Sensational. It sounds like something that was cooked up to promote the attraction later on. Uh-huh. I okay. I mean, I have no idea. Um, I mean, it's easy to say something like that happens after the fact. Right. It's like, you know, like in the 60s when Kennedy was assassinated and suddenly Gene Dixon comes forward and says, oh, I predicted this. Or <laughs> I had a bad you know, feeling. I, yeah. I mean, everybody can say that afterward, you know. Right. So, I don't know. It's hard to say. It makes for a good story. It's, though. It, it does make for a good story. And it, and it made a worthwhile addition to our story here. Yes. So, so yeah. Charlie Buck and Sanders went for a shooting competition uh, while the women cooked. Marie prepared for a date with her boyfriend, later Charlie Hampton. The men eventually go back to their own farms to eat. And then Charlie convinced the boys to walk to town to buy more shells so they could shoot some rabbits. And he's like, no, nah, the stores will be open here. You'll find yeah, somebody. Right. On Christmas Day. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how it worked back then, but probably not. Um, and well, so- you might have been able to find some shopkeeper who lived above his store. Right. Or, you know, live next door or something. And if, you, you know, he knows the kids and say, all right, let me get you a box, you know. But yes. Still, uh, whatever they fell for it, that's all that mattered. Exactly. So. They fell for it. Hook, line, sinker. And Fanny sends uh, Carrie and Mabel off to visit their uncle Elijah's family for lunch. Unbeknownst to them, their father's waiting for them in the barn, along with the voices in his head. Uh, he has a 12 gauge double barreled shotgun and his 25 20 rifle. And I looked, I looked these up. Um, and the one, I mean, the pictures I saw now that were nice. Nice guns that 2520 rifle, as far as being yeah. old back then. I'm sure his wasn't that great, but enough to well, do. Well, that's probably something that that people in that day and age and where they were, because I'm sure that they counted on what they could shoot a lot to supplement their food. Yeah. Uh, they probably were willing to spend the money on guns. Okay. My guess. Sure. Oh, no, that, no, that makes sense. Um, and so he aims the shotgun, it carries back and pulls the trigger. Then it Mabel, you know, real, uh, real uh, uh, apex predator shooting a child in the back with a fucking Jesus. shotgun. Oh, no. um, walks over, fires a rifle shot into Carrie's head because she's not done. Because, you know, why waste the whole shotgun shell yeah, and she's not moving? Then he takes a piece of wood and bludgeons the two little girls' heads in. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, he picks them up lays them in the barn with stones under their heads and folds their arms across their chest. This is like a symbolic thing that we'll kind of see sure. um, yeah. putting something under their heads, folding the arms, closing the eyes. Um, can, can we talk a little bit more? I don't know if I skipped over it a little bit or, or what, but um, more about the um, what the voices were telling him or what the issue, what was he, we well, wanted to I, send them I, straight to God. Who, who know? knows? I mean, the, the theory is um, that, he believed that he was saving his family for some reason. Um, that, that's that's what's been deduced from the way that he laid the bodies out in mm-hmm. repose like that. Because, yeah. I mean, they were obviously put on display at peace. Right. You know, so it wasn't like he was doing it. I mean, he thought he was doing it for a right reason, apparently. Mm-hmm. That's, Otherwise, that's he would have just left them in there. Right. That's what's thought by the way that he behaved. Right. So after okay. they were dead, not before. Yeah. So. Yeah. That seems to say a lot. I just don't exactly know what it says, but it seems. Yeah, to say a lot. I know. Right. Um, he goes in, he goes to the house, uh, fires directly into Fanny's chest, drag her out to the front porch. I, I, that, she, she was outside getting wood Yeah, out, and, off the, away from the house and he shot her 
drug her up and dumped her on the porch. Yeah, and that and that interests me too. Heard at, that. at first I was wondering, I was like, oh, is he gonna save her for last or what? Yeah. It just kind of seems like opportunity. However, yeah, it was all um, just kind of random in whatever order it fell in. Yeah, really. so. opens the door, shoots Marie in the chest. Then James, ugh, the worst, some of the worst. This, it's, it's downhill from here if it hasn't already. Yeah, it is. James Four hides under his bed. Charlie drag, drags him out, just bashes his head in with the butt of a gun. Charlie, a two-year-old, knows enough to run. Oh, Raymond, yeah. Um, yes, it, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Charlie pulls James. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Out from yeah, behind yeah. the stove, bashes his head in with the shotgun. It's after he takes a little bit to get him. Apparently wasn't even phased by the singeing with the, with the stove and stuff. Does the same to the baby. Ugh, I know. Which I mean, that's the worst. I know. I if, and it, that and is it is it weird to me that like even that speaks volumes? Like there was no limit or no, no and absolutely no hesitation, no remorse, no yeah. anything. And yeah, I mean, didn't even slow down. He just kept going. Did we when we talked about uh, Velisca or Axfiend and stuff? Um, were there many infants that we talked about? Um, there were a couple, but not many. Yeah. Um, and and not obviously not an infant that belonged to the killer. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's what makes this so much more horrendous. Yeah. Well, these are his kids, man. Yeah. I mean, God. Yeah. I wonder, is it is it um is it like the fake Amneville thing where he sees people as demons or whatever? Or did he know, know exactly man. what he's yeah, doing? I, I don't know. I I how much can we get into the mind of a psycho? Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's so long ago. And, you know, I mean, all this, the only stuff that we can kind of guess on is the the stuff that he does. You can kind of try to guess his motivations, but we'll never know. We'll right. never really know it why is, he would do such horrible things. It is. I know. And, I, and this is like probably my. um, uh, I don't know. My little downfalls every time trying to put myself in the oh, shoes I know. of someone who no, I, know. I can't even see their feet kind of thing, you know, <laughs> but, but, try. Yeah, yeah. but it, what, what is really impressive to me though, is I will say is the, um, and I'm not going where you think I'm going, but the, um, the, the forensic examiners being able to put all this together once because bodies yeah. had moved and stuff. Yeah, um, they, they did. Yeah. For, especially again for 1929, they, in the country, in a rural area, they, they were able to just kind of walk their way through, yeah. you know, what, had happened in kind of what order it happened in yeah you know which you know impressive i agree it, it is yes yeah, it's, it's impressive police work uh the aftermath so charlie's brother elijah and two well i wouldn't even call us the aftermath but the beginning of the aftermath charlie's yeah. brother elijah and two sons claude and carol stopped by like hey we're gonna wish you know their yeah. family merry yeah. christmas merry christmas claude yeah. runs up sees it first and i'm guessing Im immediately shatters his young mind yeah, um, I, I can't imagine that he was ever the same after that. Uh, mm -mm. And Elijah's like, uh, you know, sees this carnage and then it's like, shit, I have no ammunition. Yeah. We, we got to get out of here. Run to um, a hill close enough to the Miller farm, yell out, call the sheriff, call the neighbors, get the posse going. And something that I, you, you mentioned and kept noticing, people kept commenting. There was like, there's so much blood. Uh -huh. like, they just Everybody kept commenting on that. that. Yeah, it's just everywhere. And at that point, Charlie, Buck, Carrie, and Mabel are still missing. Um, at first, I was wondering, I said, you know, why not bring the girls from the barn to the house? But I guess he already kind of arranged them where right, he wanted right. them. Yeah, and so I guess. just, just yeah. left them there. Uh, they find the other bodies, and then they hear back that Buck is safe and sound. So now, Charlie's the only one missing. And I'm guessing someone was like, who's going to be the first to say it? 
you know, uh-huh. is, right. is he dead or did he do this? They yeah. eventually find his body around 4 p.m. Uh, he'd been circling a tree like a crazy person um, a ton. Finally sits down, puts the shotgun to his own chest. And this is something we've talked about before, too, is I've always wondered, like, I mean, a shotgun, it's not short. Right. Chest, chest seems a lot harder than your head. It does. It does. And um, that means and really all I have to say. Yeah, he's not going to take his shoes off and do it with his toes. So must have had fairly long arms I yeah guess. i don't know that's all i could figure too yeah and i just i don't know i've it's, it's always curious to me about the way people choose to do these things but um they they find a few notes in his pocket scribbles of uh you know not potential confessions but but some scrawlings of a madman i guess but his business yeah. is doing well you know especially for this time right um, right and he's got 58 dollars in his pocket which is equivalent to what like two hundred eighty thousand yeah, dollars no 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 but <laughs> it's, it's still a decent amount of money it's so. a good amount of money uh and this is something that you mentioned so of course he would send buck away as the one person they couldn't physically overpower right however if it was twofold and he just did it as revenge like that's the yeah, most uh, brutal punishment and it i mean and, and you know that's just a that's just a maybe an idea but it kind of makes sense because buck is the one who humiliated him as far as he was concerned you know I, he's the one who stood up to him he's the one who you know put him in his place and maybe this is a way to get back at him and you know? i i was thinking about this um obviously you know can't really put myself in that position but I think this is a lot about Buck. I think it says a lot about me too, because I think this would have worked with me because I think one, I would have had a psychotic break or two, I might've taken my own life. Like this yeah, is yeah, a yeah. like a, Oh, as really, far as really messed up a pity yeah. stuff. And just like this, yeah. this had to have been just life shattering for this. Well, person. And it was, it, as it well, was, yes, and, and it was, and, a, a and, a, life, and so. he turns to the bottle because, of course, yeah, of course, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, but we'll we'll get to that in a second. And talk about ruining Christmas, you know, it, it put You're a, never gonna have a good Christmas, yes. It put a I don't want to say know, black ever. mark, but a red mark all over Christmas, yeah, definitely, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's like, no, why is anyone could get you is ever gonna make up for <laughs> no, it, no, no, you know. Unless there's a new family in that box, I'm not interested. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, Unless the Necronomicon is in that box to bring your family back to life. Uh, this section I titled "Putting the Fun in Funeral." So they <laughs> they did graves for eight caskets, and they buried little Mary Lou in her mother's arms, which is so symbolic and upsetting, and just fuck. Um, the massacres made uh, made front page news in at least 19 different states. And then the morbid curious, our fans don't do this, but they make yeah. everything way worse. And like, and people are like cleaning up sort of, but then also taking some blood and yeah. like different and shit. Stripping the tree where they found Charlie's body. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we've seen this time and time again with different. Yeah. You know, with all of these, you know, we've talked well, about so many of these. Don't get me wrong. The first thing I Googled was like Lawson family artifacts. And I was I like, know, are any I of these around? Yeah. And I'm sure they'd be fake. But um, visitors, yeah, they loot the cabin, turn the scene and the funeral into a nightmare. At least 5,000 people attended. This is something that really surprised me, though. So eventually they do open the caskets. Yeah, I thought that was weird. Why? Really weird. I don't know. I guess just so... I don't know. People could take one last look, but the thing was, that, why would you, you know, want to look at that? Bashed in the heads of most of them, not all of them, but most of them. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, sure, you could cover up somebody that got shot in the chest, but those little girls that he beat their heads in with the board and the little boys he bashed their heads in with the butt of the guns. I mean, who wants to see that? I know. I, I mean, these are friends and relatives here. Yeah. I don't get it. I couldn't figure that one out, but whatever. Yeah. Different time, I guess. Different time. Back to that again, you know? Um. Okay. Rumor mills and revelations is what I call this. So most believe that Charlie's head injury had a lot to do with it. I would agree. Yeah. Lots of dumb conspiracies don't really add up. Don't need to talk about that. Six yeah, gangsters and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Six talk about melodramatic. Yeah, right. Six decades later, Stella Bowles, Marion Lawson's daughter, says that she had um, witnessed a meeting that had taken place and it was said that Marie was pregnant with Charlie's baby. He threatened her life for murder, you know, um, if she told. Fanny decides to eventually tell, and her story's later confirmed by Ella Mae Johnson, who's Marie's best friend. You set this up in the beginning of the episode. Um, so there's some it's incest. a maybe. It's yeah. a maybe. None okay. of this has been confirmed. It's so not we, like okay, we don't know. They dug her up and did DNA tests or anything. It wasn't, it's nothing like that. Uh-huh. These are these are the stories that they tell, you know, all these years later in the 90s about what they believed happened and that this is what they said. Well, she was pregnant. You know, Fanny told us, you know, don't tell anybody. It's just a family secret. We don't want anybody to know. And then of course they tell anyway. So, yeah. but um, you know, so I, I don't know. I can't guarantee this is the truth, but it's, it, it, you know, it kind of makes sense. Unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, this guy was off his rocker. So, well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Of course. Uh, so, Marion knows the family needs money and there's people all around. And I know people find this in bad taste. Then um, I say, I like this idea because it's pretty well, like, look, people he, are going to be he was doing it for a good cause. Exactly. Yeah, he really was. He had straight intentions. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so he he ropes off the area, starts charging admissions like, fuck, you know what? People are going to be come here. Come yeah. here. Well, might as well make stuff. them pay something because they will. And Buck needs the money. He needs so. the money. And so people are pissed at first, but it pays the bills and becomes a tourist. Attack. Yeah, and then, Damn. well, then they kind of warm up to it, too, because it's like the only town around that's making money during the Depression. Uh -huh. because all these tourists are coming there and spending money and buying food and drinks and staying in the hotel. Yes. And so then suddenly, oh, well, we don't approve, but, but you know, we're not going to turn away. The we're not going to look a gift horse yeah. in the mouth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so then eventually the Lawson family murders are taken on the road via artifacts and fake things. Yeah, and all those that. were the days, man. That those is, were the days of the sideshow. That would be, yeah, that would be amazing. That would be so cool. Dude, we would go to those things. Stuff. I would, I would go oh, with you go all the time. We'd check go. them all out. I mean, I went when I was a kid, I went as often as I could. There weren't as many. I mean, none of it and nothing that good. Yeah. But there were still some around. But, you know, now there's there's not. Yeah. Anything. But, man, I would love, you know, I would love mm -hmm. to have been alive to see some of that. Stuff. I want to see. Even, though it, was, uh, even uh, though it was fake, I still want to see it. No, I, I want to see it. <laughs> no, I want to be running it. That's the thing. That so, is true. Yes. And yeah. I would, I'd bring to you and be like, Troy, I have a monkey sewed to a fish. Can you uh -huh, exactly. We're going to make a fortune. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing left to see of the, the crime scene or anything today. But neighbors next door do tell stories of spirits of a little boy and girl who began showing up on their doorstep and kept coming back. And one showed a photograph. She was like, oh, that's Mabel and James Lawson. And the sightings, they still go on today. Buck eventually starts his own family, and he often drinks alone um, or drank alone. Oh, Listen to Carolina Buddies performing the Lawson family murder. There are actually a bunch of um, – you should look that up. 
if you get uh, a chance. So did I you listened look up to any it? of them. I did. Okay. And there's a bunch of murder ballads well, on the Boston. Some family. of these are so old. Um, as long as yeah. I can get the copyright stuff figured out, I'm just oh, gonna no. play. Yeah, they're. I'm gonna play one be... at the end of the episode. I'm gonna end the episode. Okay, because yeah, there should be. They should be public domain now. Okay, yeah, that's old. what I thought. And they're all folk, just folk songs. And so, and they're yeah, like, we should the, definitely be able to put one on there. They're the most like cliche sounding folk oh, songs ever. And there's a zillion of them. I mean, every if we you know we should have thought about it because a lot of the stuff that we did this season had folk songs had murder ballads connected ah, and i wish it. we'd have thought about it this was just one that is really really Dark. had a bunch of them yeah, yeah. it had a bunch of them and, and I, I, well, I think I was that also, was the most popular one was the so, carolina buddies so what you're gonna hear sometimes well, i want to start episode. a band called the you know, the illinois buddies i yeah i have Every yeah. instrument you'd ever need. I actually recorded some buddies. I recorded some guitar stuff last night, dude, just to see what it sounded <laughs> like. We can do it. We, I have uh, technology. I, 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 uh, you feel free. I'll, I'll be your manager. I, okay, I'll call Packy. Um, I just wanted the buddies thing. <laughs> he just awesome. wanted to be one of the buddies. Yeah, he um, wanted to be a buddy. And a lot of the comments I saw on this video that they said Battenton sent me here, and I was like, what is that? And I looked up, and there's this youtube channel called bat battington and there's a video called my two front teeth and it's this guy he a guy i'm guessing it's guy but he does these they do this um weird animation of like horror story stuff it's it has oh, like okay. half a million followers and it's bizarre but at one point there's this like um animation of a little girl and she's like mom and she's like you're not my mom and then she's like dad and the dad comes in and this carolina buddies song starts playing and people apparently searched for it and they were like uh. they, it's a very subtle thing but they made the connection and it's some creepy shit it's weird it's wow. really acid trippy crazy horror huh. stuff but wow um, if you're looking if you check that out it looks Maybe so we weird need to put a link up to that too i will just because yeah. i can't i don't know what, how to make heads or tails of it but it's it was huh. bizarre shit um, uh, when, when you said two front teeth i thought it was like christmas song or something i, I think that's part of what it is i think that's like a play on that kind of concept, oh okay gotcha. um but uh, anyway, look, the ghost. So, of course, the house is haunted at night back when it was around. Um, the local chapter of the Junior Order of United oh, American yeah. Mechanics used the Lawson Grave as a part of their initiation ceremony. And I love this kind of shit because I, I would have I would have been scared funny. and I would have done it. I would have yeah, totally done yeah, it. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, Buck, like I said, drinks himself almost to death and then he's in a car accident and killed instantly. And that's what a what a bummer of a life what, i know what a miserable and he wasn't even that old i mean he was young i mean it just god i mean you know, look at his 30s I know. and well you know we probably felt like he lived on borrowed time anyway. sure. well sure you know what i mean i bet yeah. he did I of course really did, so and yeah i mean i like i said what kind of life would that i mean at least for I'm me kidding. what kind of life would that have been yeah, living with awful. living with that um oh well um I know we ended on a happy note, but that, that's all I got for that. Yeah, there is no happy note in this. This is one of the, Troy, this is, I mean, this hurt I told me, you I was saving the worst for last. So, yes, no, <laughs> this hurt me it. more than anything else I think we've done. Maybe, maybe Henry and Parker, well, but this one was yeah, cool. Yeah, this is really grim. I mean, the the step-by-step, -step, I mean, even I've written it, and I've written this, I've written this story before, and I rewrote the script, and when I was, even when I was reading it, I'm like, when I'm getting through the like killing those kids step by step, 
even I was like, oh my God, yeah, this is awful. I don't normally read this aloud. You yeah, know, it was really awful. So, yeah, I think I texted you. I was like, I'm I'm two murders deep, and you're. I like, know, and I'm worse. like, yeah, it gets worse. Sorry. Yeah. And it we we uh, we delivered. Um, oh boy. Okay. Well, if you're still listening, um, I'd yeah, like to yeah, give right. Some, <laughs> turned us off. Yeah. Some shout outs to our latest uh, subscribers on Patreon. So thank you so much for supporting the show. To Sarah, Charlie Brockus, um, who yeah. you might know, and um, uh, uh, Eben, Eben, Andrew, Tolpa, April, Casey, Jody, Jamie, Robin, Marlise, Brittany, and Yvonne. So thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon and getting uh, you, you get um, ad free bonus episodes. You can get some uh, T-shirts depending on what what um, tier you sign up for. You can get access to our Facebook group. You can get discounts, early access to tickets, and things like that. There's a lot of cool stuff that you can check out um, at uh, Patreon.com. <laughs> slash american haunting so thank you so much for supporting the show we really appreciate it and as we say we uh, couldn't and wouldn't do it without you yeah and we're um <clears throat> excuse me you're good we're up to um episode four in our new um patreon only podcast too so yes. we are up to number four and yeah it's yeah it's been get, a lot of fun starting to get um gruesome yeah yeah it's starting to get pretty gruesome charlie yeah. actually texted me the other day and he goes if i don't hear cows sometime soon and then he's like okay there they are there they are yeah <laughs> yeah i made sure i put cows in so. yeah <laughs> oh something funny i took out my um my airpods the other day and i'm always like bouncing back and forth between my laptop and my phone and uh bluetooth speakers and all that and sometimes when i take out my airpods my itunes will automatically pop up on my laptop and one of the things that happened um, when I popped that up is my iTunes started playing and it played the last thing that I imported and it was just a woman crying. So all oh, of a sudden yeah. my computer just started having this <laughs> woman like crying hysterically out of nowhere. And I was like, <laughs> just, yeah, you freaked me yeah. out. Yeah, we should mention if you haven't heard that podcast, it has sound effects. Our yes. Patreon podcast does. Sound effects and Troy using different accents. Yes. So I'm perfecting my Norwegian accent. Currently. Yeah. I'm glad that we have stuck to mostly the um, white countries with your accent. Yes, I have to. to. Yes, I. Yeah. It's, it's not it's, problematic. Yet. I'm not going to do any, you know, Hispanic themed ones or anything. Thank you. Like that. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, I'm sticking to Norwegian. Uh, it's like saves that. me so, such an awkward conversation. Yeah. No kidding. Right. <laughs> I would even bother. So it is now time for our ghostwriter segment if you have a question or comment about um, uh, the world of macabre or if you have a question that you want to pose for the dead of winter conference you can email us at american hauntings podcast at gmail.com this uh comes to us from aaron and the subject is new season idea aaron says for the season of uh, the 30th anniversary of american hauntings could you do a season highlighting how it all started in decatur 30, oh sorry i thought 30th season what the yeah. fuck it's only season seven how how it all far down the road but how it all he's getting ahead of himself no how yeah, it all no, he means a 30th anniversary yes uh, for, 2023 but we're not doing that for uh, decatur springfield other central illinois i live in decatur would love to hear some stories from my hometown um i wanted to mention aaron you are in luck we're not doing that as a season but troy has haunted decatur book that had a 25th anniversary oh, he's, haunted yeah, decatur he, tours he already. yeah he knows this already oh okay he yeah. just wants me to do the podcast okay he's aaron, me about it before aaron troy said no. it's okay um, uh, no it's i think i jokingly told him over my dead body but um aaron we, uh, we at some point we maybe we'll do a something special yeah we could do a little side anniversary something, yeah. we could do a side podcast 
if that wouldn't make Aaron feel better. So, yeah. Okay. Aaron, it's all like about you listeners. It's all about you. Yeah. So uh, call your local congressman um, yeah. vote. Uh, yeah. yeah. Let them know. Let them know. Yes, how you if feel. We get you to send your congressman uh, details about <laughs> our podcast. We will. Uh, we'll no, we, we don't want to do that. We want to stay under the radar. Let's oh, that's true. Any attention. We don't need to. That's true. So. Never mind. Aaron, sorry. I don't no. know. What's, uh, you know yeah. what's up in the air, bro? Um, no, but it's not a bad idea. As not a bad idea. Troy, that's all I got, man, for this. Um, to, okay. to, to end it for, you know, essentially for season yeah. six. Season six, man. This was in a, it's been in our seasons are an entire year. I know. Realize I, that, right? I mean, well, I was talking to a. I already, I have season seven all ready to go and planned out that I'm going to give you next week. I'm excited. Um, it's all ready to go and it ends in December. Damn so it. it'll be just like, yeah. Oh, well, I was talking, like I was talking to a, a third party service the other day about something we might partner with. And they were like, um, okay, so yeah, we want to do something with you for season six. Um, how long do you think it'll go? And I said, or they said, when do you think it'll end? And I said, uh, let's see, we'll probably st we'll start in January. I'm guessing we'll end in December. They're like, yeah, oh, oh, so we have time. Yes. 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 We have so nothing. That is our, our season because I, I have 23 episodes planned for next time. Oh, so perfect. All ready to roll. So perfect. Oh. I'm excited. And this is all about um, trolls and gnomes out of yes. Scandinavia. Yes. Is that garden gnomes. Um, yeah. We're going to do the life of a garden gnome. Uh -huh. we'll, I'll probably do an episode on the Smurfs. Uh -huh. uh, oh, okay. no, gnome Just puberty. All those kind of, you know, some of that kind of stuff mixed in. You yeah. Know, trolls, goblins, you know, yes. all that kind of stuff. So yeah, the exploitation of love Smurfs. It. I'm sure they're gonna love it. So. Yeah, it's a it's a hot button issue. We're gonna tackle all of it. Yeah, we are. We are. <laughs> I'm excited. It's controversial, but you know, but we're brave enough. We're we're brave enough. So, <laughs> Troy, uh, you want to take us out? That's all I got, man. Yep, that's it. Sounds good to me. So let's get be done here. So, guys, thanks so much for listening to season six. Uh, I just cooked this idea up last year to put together a weird. And it was a little weird, but thank you for listening all the way through. We're going to be back in January. January the 10th will be our, um, I'm not calling it a trailer because it's going to be a little longer than that. I'm going to call it our introductory to the season episode on okay. January 10th. It just kind of wet your whistle for what's coming up in the next 22 episodes after that. That's kind of where it's going to go. So January 10th, we'll be back, but if you are thinking, geez, I can't wait that long. Well, you don't have to mm -hmm. sign up for Patreon. You can listen to those podcasts because uh, we'll have another one of those going up next week. So we'll have, um, and our horror film podcast will be going up too. Mm -hmm. So we'll have two things next week. That'll be interesting. Um, and, yeah, and when you sign up the Patreon too, you do get access to the whole back catalog yeah, too. You get the last season too. 30 something episodes, then, I think yeah. on there. Yeah, there's a lot of back stuff on there. No Just ads. Individual episodes, no ads. Uh, and then we, I mean, we have like our Orson Welles episode nope. from the Hollywood season, nope, which everyone loves. Low point. So that one is on there. Uh, and then we also will have um, our last entire season of the Moonlight Murder and then Come Prepared to Stay Forever. We're up to episode four now. Be going yeah. up this week. So, yeah. And yeah, so and there's most lots of, it, of extra stuff to listen to. Yeah, for people who don't know, it, it's usually Troy doing like a, a single monologue about a story, but we have stuff on there. Um, I've done some like yeah. early horror movie reviews where I've interviewed some um, people in the film industry about horror yeah. movies and stuff. Like we have yeah. a, like a mix of some fun yeah. stuff. Yeah, because you've been doing episodes where you interview people that are like speakers 
for our events and stuff too. Yep, and we put too. those on there also. So it's not just stories, but this podcast season is something we're doing that's extra. But yeah, there's a lot of other stuff on there. Yeah, so it's all over. Thinking place. of how you don't know how you're going to make it for the next month. Um, <laughs> right. without a podcast you can't have them so yeah and of all those fellas just go back to the first season just start an episode uh, start over or, go to um, halfway through season two and start listening from yeah there. start when we realized right. that the device we had had not been recording through the microphone we don't talk we don't talk about that yeah. i i like to oh. say start when we got out of the recording studio and start doing it ourselves so you can know yeah that. but then that's when we didn't know that the microphones weren't picking yeah up that too for about half the season oh so. boy we are professionals this episode yeah. of the American <laughs> podcast was written by troy taylor and is produced and edited by me cody beck Music for this season is performed by Packy Lundholm, and you can find more about his music at upcoming shows on Twitter, Instagram, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, and Facebook. If you don't follow him anywhere, I really suggest because it's hilarious. He's really fun. He does a lot of cool <laughs> stuff yeah. online. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he just Absolutely. is a very talented guy. He was playing uh, uh, some crazy, not xylophone, vi vibraphones, I think, today. I was like posting about <laughs> you can it. Play like, anything, I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah. It's just a Renaissance man of, of the musical Billy. So, uh, you can find us on most of those places too. Plus, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, Sp uh, anywhere you listen to stuff. Red like Circle. Somebody was about to listen right on Red Circle because it's faster. There, oh, there you that. go. Yeah. yeah, Red Circle, our hosting um, platform. Yeah. Um, if you have a Red Circle podcast too and you want to do some kind of show swap thing with us, hit me up. Uh, you can do it right through Red oh, Circle. Yeah. We'll figure sure. something out. Um, find the website at AmericanHollingsPodcast.com and find more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. Thanks for listening. We couldn't and probably wouldn't do it without you. So until next season, I guess, yep. aside from Absolutely. our main, uh, you know, our horror movie episode, but until next season, goodbye. So long. See you later. Oh, Merry Christmas. And a uh, happy new year. Violet.